0: And as I mentioned last week, I'm more than delighted to welcome Sam back to the History of England. And I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode on the stirrings of Tudor external trade and exploration. As Sam says, he's also starting a new podcast called Pax Britannica, so do check that out. His history of witchcraft was really good, so you can be confident this will be too. I shall certainly be listening, promise. I'm still hoping to get back to Mary Tudor in a few weeks... But in the meantime, could I give a shout-out on behalf of the Agora Podcast Network. Now, I have not mentioned the lovely Agora for a while, since I suspected it was a statement that had just become wallpaper. Anyway, my mate Pat told me to shush, and I'm a compliant sort of person. However, Agora is still going strong, and not only is there a great stable of podcasts as ever, but we are also open to advertisers. So, if you want to know more about our podcasts, or about connecting you with over a million curious and discerning listeners every month. That's people like you, by the way, just in case you didn't recognise that. Email us at agorapodcastnetwork at gmail.com or go to our Agora Podcast Network website. That's the end of the party political. Mainly, thank you so much for all your patience. I'm really sorry about the delay. And thank you very much for some brilliant reviews on Facebook and iTunes recently. I bask and soak in everyone with joy and delight. Now, sit back and enjoy Gold, Praise and Glory.
1: Welcome back to the History of England. Now, it should go without saying that I am not David Crowther, although since I apparently pointed out that tradition last time, I feel like I have to stick with it. My name is Samuel Hume, and some listeners may recognise my voice from the last time David was kind enough to let me anywhere near his audience. Yes, in July 2017, I produced an episode entitled Witchcraft in Tudor, England, which did exactly what it said on the tin, an episode which was later recreated for my own podcast, The History of Witchcraft. Now I have returned, older and wiser, relatively speaking, as the host of a new podcast, Pax Britannica, to present a guest episode on English piracy, exploration and trade. Much like my previous guest episode, this will jump ahead of David's narrative, and I'm very grateful to David for letting me on his show again. By the time of the Tudors, English trade for the preceding centuries had been dominated by one staple – wool. Either raw or woven into cloth, wool was England's chief export for overseas trade throughout the 15th and 16th centuries. Wool would be collected in the cities of England, mostly London, and either shipped as it was or manufactured into cloth. English wool was highly valued by cloth-making industries in the Netherlands and northern Italy and much of this would find its way there for weaving and dyeing. However, most English wool found its way into English looms, and the trade of English cloth was the principal export of England. As much as half of the cloth exported was undyed and plain, the process of treating cloth was complicated and required a high degree of skill. Plain cloth could be made and exported much quicker, but for much lower profit than coloured fabric. At the beginning of the 16th century, the most important markets for English wool were, firstly, the Netherlands and the Rhineland, and then the rest of Germany, the Baltic, and even as far inland as Hungary. Until the 1550s, English cloth exports continued to rise, as their competitors on the continent were dealing with factors that the English simply weren't yet. From the 1550s onwards, English merchants found that the game had changed. Until the midpoint of the 16th century, English cloth makers had benefited from low domestic wool prices, allowing them to keep their production costs low, and so undercut their mainland rivals. Once England's economy caught up with these changes in price, the damage began to be felt. Another problem was a mysterious thing that still confuses me to this day. Fashion. In the second half of the 16th century, but at various times and to different extents, thick heavy English cloves became less popular. On the contrary, lighter cloves became much more popular, with textile producers in the Low Countries adjusting to the new fashions. English producers adapted too, of course, but at a much slower rate, and even by 1600 had not adequately caught up to Dutch manufacturers. In addition to gradual changes in the economy, such as fashion and price increases, there were much more dramatic reasons for a drop in the English wool trade. The Company of Merchant Adventurers of London, which dominated wool exports, had chosen the Dutch city of Antwerp as its staple port. It was a short, relatively simple journey from the Thames estuary to Antwerp, and the city offered preferential tariffs and had built up a significant community of English merchants. From Antwerp, imported English wool, both raw and woven, would either be transported to other Dutch cities for processing or for sale, or shipped down the rivers to Germany and further afield. It was a good system, profitable for both the English exporters and for their customers. However, in 1563, the governments of the Netherlands and England became hostile, and for over a year, trade between the two was blocked. In the meantime, the Company of Merchant Adventurers attempted to migrate their staple port to the town of Emden, but it lacked the infrastructure and benefits that Antwerp enjoyed. Luckily for the merchant adventurers, relations improved and they could return to their favoured city, only for a four year crisis to strike in 1569. England and Spain, the overlord of the Netherlands, had suffered a significant breakdown in diplomacy, and again trade between England and the Dutch was officially forbidden. This had the added drawback of blocking trade with the Mediterranean. Almost all trade routes were overland through Habsburg territory, and so were closed to English traders. During this break, the merchant adventurers moved to the German city of Hamburg, and stayed a lot longer. The economic prosperity of Antwerp required stability and security, and the growing Dutch revolt against Spanish rule was hardly helping. By the time a group of mutinous Spanish soldiers sacked Antwerp in 1576, its economy was already dying. The pillaging simply put the nails in its wool-lined coffin, as well as the coffins of the thousands of citizens killed in the Spanish fury. When the Anglo-Spanish War got into full swing, trade between Elizabeth's England and Philip's Spanish Empire would end for a generation. Similar trade difficulties arose in France, the other major recipient for English wool. The loss of Calais in 1558, which had been the staple port of England since its capture centuries before, Was something of an upset for the merchants of the staple, a rival guild to the merchant adventurers. They had been based in Calais for almost two centuries, and now moved their operation to the city of Bruges. When France underwent the wars of religion, trade with England's neighbour ground to a near halt, as chaos led only to further chaos. English merchants did not sit idly by as their traditional markets were closed to them, or their customers went elsewhere. The Low Countries in France may have been the most popular destination for English goods, but they were far from the only one. In 1551, a small trading flotilla was dispatched to Morocco, the Muslim kingdom on the northwest coast of Africa, and immediately across the Straits of Gibraltar. At the time, the dominant power were the Sadi dynasty, who would claim the title of sultan in 1554. The English began a regular, but small-scale, trading relationship. English cloth would be traded to the Moroccans in return for sugar and other luxuries. Two years later, another fleet was dispatched to journey even further south, past the Sahara Desert and along the coast of West Africa. This fleet had come in search of other luxuries – gold, ivory and pepper, among others. The English would find that they had a weak hand. The Portuguese were far ahead of them and had established fortified trading posts – With no one in England willing to cover the expense of constructing and maintaining fortifications of their own, the English merchants were forced to deal with Portuguese middlemen. Despite this, throughout the 1550s and the 1560s, the English would be the most active traders in the region, aside from the Portuguese and Spanish. English merchants and sailors did not only venture south. The markets of the east, China and India were an attractive prospect. Now, of course, the Portuguese dominated this southern route around Africa, and the Spanish the western, across the great oceans of the Atlantic and the Pacific. East led into the Baltic Sea, a region well-known to English traders, and decidedly not a route to China. That left the north. The northeast, to be precise. In 1551, the Crown incorporated the Company of Merchant Adventurers to New Lands, which financed an expedition in 1553. Quote, For the discovery by sea, of Isles, lands, territories, dominions, and seigneuries unknown, the expedition of three ships, led by Richard Chancellor and Hugh Willoughby, set off on a quest to find the North-East Passage. The three ships were separated during a storm in the North Sea, with two rejoining under the command of Willoughby. Chancellor's ship rounded the North Cape of Northern Norway and entered the White Sea landing near current-day Arkhangelsk in August of 1553. Chancellor was the expedition's navigator, and his separation appears to have been fatal for the other two ships. Willoughby also entered the White Sea, only to turn around in September and attempt to winter on the coast of Lapland. The seas were full of fish, and the land seemed full of wildlife. What could possibly go wrong? In summer of 1554, a group of fishermen found the frozen corpses of the crews of the Bona Esperanza and the Bona Confidentia. Among them was Sir Hugh Willoughby. The last entry in his journal recorded that a scouting party had returned from a mission to find a local settlement, any settlement, and hadn't found one. Going by a will found on one of the bodies, some of the men had survived until January. For Chancellor's crew, they wintered at the port of St. Nicholas, and were provided with supplies by the town authorities while Chancellor travelled inland. Without any idea of where Willoughby and the rest of the expedition was, he had little desire to continue his search for the Northeast Passage without support, so he headed to Moscow. Moscow was the capital of the newly born Tsardom of Russia, or the Tsardom of Muscovy, and its ruler was Tsar Ivan IV Rurik. Known better by his sobriquet – which is often translated into English as the Terrible. Chancellor met with either the Tsar's officials or with Ivan himself, and the meeting appears to have gone well. No records survive, but Chancellor wrote that the English were granted the right to trade with the Russians. Chancellor returned to England in 1554, and the Muscovy Company was founded to facilitate this trade. Chancellor would make another voyage in 1555, with paperwork from the English court to be ratified by their Russian counterparts. He stayed in Moscow over the winter, and on his return voyage, Chancellor was to recover Willoughby's ships, still off the coast of Lapland, and transport the Tsar's diplomat, Osip Nepeya, to England. Four ships would undertake the voyage, but only one would make the journey intact – both of Willoughby's ships were lost near Norway, and Chancellor's was wrecked off the coast of Aberdeenshire, Scotland, and Chancellor drowned. Napea later memorialised Chancellor, recording that the captain had given his own life to save the Russian ambassadors. The vast majority of the crews of these wrecked ships were also lost at sea. Chancellor and Willoughby had failed to discover a northeastern passage to the east, but had instead founded a profitable trading and diplomatic relationship with the growing power of Eurasia. It cost them their lives, and the lives of those under their command. The Muscovy Company would never find the Northeast Passage, eventually giving up after multiple expeditions in the 1580s, but they did attempt to extend their trade route from Russia south into Persia, Their Persian interests were then overtaken by the Turkey Company, established in 1581, which rivaled the Venice Company in the Mediterranean, until both merged into the Levant Company in 1592. The Eastland Company gained the monopoly for Baltic trade in 1579, which had grown increasingly valuable as the years went on. The improving economy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth meant that the market there for English cloth, and dyed English cloth at that, had grown significantly. This was not a new market like Russia was, though. The Baltic had always been a known importer of English goods, but the value and quantity was unquestionably growing. I feel like I should briefly explain exactly what a merchant or trading company is, considering we've now mentioned half a dozen of them. Trading companies were not unique to England, but their operations and aims differed depending on their country of origin. Generally speaking, trading companies were granted a government monopoly on a certain trade good or a certain region. Plantation companies, like those used during the plantation of Ireland and would be used in America, were granted the right to operate in a certain geographic location and essentially govern it. Settling colonists, enforcing laws, and collecting taxes and increasing trade were all under their remit, with the expectation that this would bring profit to the investors. This investment came from the state, economic elites like merchants or nobility, and the members of the company itself. Dutch companies were mostly commercial entities, essentially autonomous. French companies were direct extensions of state power. English companies were a bit of both, motivated by private profit and state interest. Companies operated unlike anything resembling a modern corporation – They didn't look for profit in increasing efficiency or lowering prices or something like that. They operated more bluntly. Wealth was found in transporting and selling goods. Costs were reduced by taking these goods from others or through forced labour. When the existence of the North East Passage was ruled out in the 1580s, attention shifted to finding the North West Passage. Francis Walsingham, one of the most important courtiers during Elizabeth's reign, sponsored a number of voyages to find a route around the northern coast of modern Canada. Much like with the Northeast Passage, the expeditions found that the landmasses and ice flows made such a trip impossible. However, during this time, the potential of the Newfoundland fisheries became clear, and by the accession of James in 1603, over a hundred ships sailed to the area, causing friction with the French over fishing rights in the region. In 1591, the first attempt by an English fleet to reach the east set out. They sought to travel the known way, along the coast of West Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope. What they got instead was a disaster. They were becalmed for a month, had to send one ship home after losses from scurvy, one ship was lost with all hands in a storm, while in another storm four men were killed by lightning. An officer and thirty men were killed in, quote, Anna affray when they stopped at the Camaros, they were forced to get their ships refitted at Zanzibar, lost more men from illness on the way to Penang in Malaysia, and then were forced home by a mutinous crew. That wasn't the end either, as they were becalmed once more for a month and a half, whereupon they landed in the West Indies to gather supplies. The leader of the expedition, James Lancaster, was ashore when the remaining crew sailed the ship away and surrendered it to the Spanish, leaving Lancaster to catch a lift back to Europe with the French. He returned to England in May 1594, three years after leaving, without any ships or most of the crew, and absolutely zero profit. One thing the voyage had made clear was that the Portuguese dominance of the trade route was not invulnerable, and in 1600 a group of merchants formed yet another company. It was to be led by John Watts, a famous privateer, and its leadership included multiple people with a history of maritime and land combat. It was meant to be a trading company, first and foremost, but was authorised to take military action should, quote, any opportunity be offered without prejudice or hazard, end quote. This was possibly the single most famous and influential merchant company in history. The English, and later British, East India Company. From the 1560s, the English attempted to break into one of the most lucrative markets that had been opened with the Spanish and Portuguese conquests the Atlantic slave trade. Between 1562 and 1568, an English admiral by the name of Sir John Hawkins, cousin to Sir Francis Drake, set off on voyages funded by London magnates, courtiers, and Queen Elizabeth herself. His intention was to acquire slaves in West Africa either purchased from local rulers and Portuguese middlemen, or by the use of force against the same. During this first voyage, at the head of at least three ships and a hundred men, Hawkins attacked and captured a Portuguese slave ship, and continued its journey to the Americas. On his arrival on the island of Hispaniola, he avoided the local capital of Santo Domingo, and instead offloaded 301 enslaved people in the northern ports of Isabella, Porta de Plata, and Monte Cristi. Hawkins' first voyage was a success, in the eyes of his investors at least, and a second voyage was commissioned. His second voyage was also a success, and Hawkins was accompanied by Drake as he sailed along the coast of West Africa, before heading across the Atlantic with a new human cargo captured in raids. 400 had survived the journey when they were sold along the coast of modern Venezuela. Quote, Sir Juan Hawkins received commendation from local Spanish officials for his pleasant transactions. Hawkins' third journey was less successful. It began much like the first, with the capture of a Portuguese slave ship and its cargo of 400 souls. The intention was to sell them at one of the ports he had visited on his previous journey. Instead, Hawkins was engaged by a Spanish fleet at the Battle of San Juan de Alua. The Spanish, angry at Hawkins's repeated flouting of their trade laws, destroyed all but two of the English ships. Hawkins commanded the Minion, while his cousin Drake sailed the Judith. Now, for one reason or another, overnight the Judith, again commanded by Sir Francis Drake, a cousin of Hawkins, sailed away, leaving Hawkins and 320 crew behind. Hawkins managed to return to England by January of 1569. He had lost 90 crew to Spanish imprisonment, and abandoned a further 96 men near a settlement in the Gulf of Mexico, who were tried by the Inquisition for heresy. Arriving in Cornwall with only 15 men, Hawkins wrote to the Queen, declaring that, all is lost save only honour, which is definitely one way to look at the disastrous slaving trip. The voyage had been, in almost every element, a complete disgrace. Almost being the key word there. Despite returning home with barely more than a dozen crew, nearly all of the treasure gained from the voyage had been returned on the Judith and the Minion. This was the end, temporarily at least, of large-scale English involvement in the Atlantic slave trade. Neither England nor Spain would forget the Battle of San Juan de Alua, and when Portugal allowed the English to trade in the Azores and the Madeiras in 1571, English activity around Guinea fell to basically nothing. They didn't need to go so far south now. But the profit to be gained from Spanish America and the Spanish Lake of the Caribbean were too great to pass up. Hawkins's successes were proof of that. A new source of income attracted the interest of England's investors and the cash-strapped Elizabeth, who commissioned her subjects to prowl the seas for Spanish wealth. They called themselves privateers. Their targets called them pirates. Between 1568 and 1585, there were at least 14 raids by the English against Spanish interests in the Caribbean. This was before the period when both the English and Spanish governments could still pretend to be at peace. The Anglo-Spanish War, while undeclared and therefore difficult to date the start of, began in earnest in 1585 with the signing of the Treaty of Nonsuch. Anglo-Spanish relations were complicated. English behaviour was ever so slightly hostile, somehow Philip of Spain was irritated by English smuggling and campaigns of piracy. Not to mention English support of Protestant rebels, but that's another story. The most successful privateer of this period was John Hawkins' second cousin, Sir Francis Drake. Now, Drake is one of the most famous figures from the Elizabethan era, usually in combination with Shakespeare and Sir Walter Raleigh, and it's easy to see why. In 1572, Drake planned to capture the annual shipment of silver from Spanish Peru. His plan was to attack the convoy before it reached the port and the safety of the ships. Drake found allies for his raid from both a community of escaped slaves, the Negros Cimarrones, as well as from the French corsair Goulam Letetsu. His combined raiding party ambushed the mile-long convoy in the interior of Panama, and made off with enough treasure to last a lifetime literally Professor Benjamin Thomas writes that quote every member of Drake's company received enough booty to become rich men for life end quote to the Spanish he was the Drake el Drake and his fame in England already significant exploded one of those rich men John Oxenham tried to outshine his former captain in 1576 by crossing the isthmus of Panama and secretly constructing a ship in the Pacific in theory This would prevent Spanish garrisons or patrols discovering him as he sailed around South America and would allow him to strike at the unsuspecting Pacific Treasure Fleet. In reality, Oxenham was captured by the Spanish and hanged as a heretic and a pirate in the Peruvian capital of Lima, and that was the end of that. In 1577, Drake then topped his previous achievement by sailing straight through the Straits of Magellan, A narrow passage through the archipelago that makes up the Tierra del Fuego, the southern tip of South America. Once he was in the Pacific, Drake set to his bloody but profitable work. He raided shipping and sacked settlements from Chile to North America, before crossing the Pacific and returning to England, laden with treasure and riches. In doing so, he followed in the wake of the namesake of the Straits, Ferdinand Magellan, and completed the second circumnavigation of the globe. The idea of occupying parts of South America had been proposed in 1574, but Elizabeth rejected the idea. At the time, the Queen was attempting a rapprochement with the Spanish, and such a brazen incursion into Philip II's sphere influence was considered too damaging yet by the time Drake departed England for his famous voyage, relations were again deteriorating. Drake's official reason for undertaking this journey, aside from loot, was to scout the terrain of the New World for prospective English colonies, and for native allies against the Spanish. Between Drake's return to England in 1578, and the outbreak of the Anglo-Spanish War in 1585, English overseas ambitions only grew while Anglo-Spanish relations deteriorated. In 1579, Hawkins presented the Queen with a plan to capture the Spanish treasure fleet, and in 1581 he took part in a raid on the Azores. Portugal was now part of the Iberian Union, now another part of the composite monarchy of Philip II, because the Habsburgs. This brought Portuguese overseas possessions under Spanish dominance for the next 50 years, which also made them viable targets for English privateers. A pretender to the Portuguese throne, Don Antonio, sheltered in England and commissioned his hosts to target Portuguese shipping. Every year during the 1580s and the 1590s, between one and two hundred ships prowled the Atlantic and Caribbean for Spanish prizes. In 1585, as we mentioned, Anglo-Spanish relations reached their nadir, and open and undisguised conflict broke out, The Treaty of Nonsuch was signed between England and the Dutch United Provinces, who were in open revolt against Spanish rule. English soldiers fought Spanish interests on the continent as well as at sea. Drake conducted a damaging raid on the Spanish Caribbean, burning much of Cartagena and Santo Domingo, and plundered the Cape Verde Islands. In 1587, he led an attack on the strategic port of Cadiz on the southern coast of Spain. While the English succeeded in burning many ships, They did not capture the city this time, and the raid only delayed the Spanish response. The first of four armadas, and the most famous set off in 1588, with 130 ships and 18,000 soldiers, intent on ending the irritating English raids. It was a narrow escape for the English, and none of the further attempts were successful either. The English led their own armada in return, which met some but far from all of its aims. In 1596, a fleet of 40 warships with a combined Anglo Dutch force of 15,000 soldiers attacked and occupied Cardiz, destroying almost 200 Spanish ships at port and holding the city for two weeks. In 1596, Sir Walter Raleigh argued that English raids on Spanish possessions and convoys were a form of self defence, and he was granted a commission by Elizabeth to attack the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean. Stating that the Spanish had lost their right to the New World because of the atrocities they had conducted against the indigenous peoples, Raleigh set out to discover the fantastical Empire of El Dorado. Quote, I will hope that these provinces and that empire now by me discovered shall suffice to enable Her Majesty and the whole kingdom with no less quantities of treasure than the King of Spain hath in all the Indias, East and West. End quote. His hope was that El Dorado would give the English the resources and manpower needed to challenge Spain's hegemony of the New World. He made three expeditions to try and find the City of Gold. No prizes for guessing how that went. The Anglo-Spanish War would drag on until after the accession of James, and it was popular. Aside from the sole and pure motivation of defending the true faith against evil Catholic Spain, it was also a chance to make a huge amount of cash. A primarily maritime conflict against a rich but spread thin enemy was a chance for incredible profit. I've seen estimates that the annual amount seized from Spain and Portuguese holdings was at least £200,000 throughout the war. Before we bring this episode to an end, it's only right that we cover the demise of two of the main characters, so to speak: Sir John Hawkins and Sir Francis Drake. Conveniently for us, although perhaps less so for them, they died within months of each other. Both Hawkins and Drake were, you will be shocked to hear, leading an expedition to attack Spanish America and steal lots of shiny things. I know, it's completely out of character. This particular campaign wasn't going perfectly, and after repeatedly failing to capture the port of San Juan, Puerto Rico, both Hawkins and Drake fell ill. The illness was most likely dysentery. Hawkins perished first, on the 12th of November 1595, and was buried at sea. Drake survived for two and a half months before he too passed. He was interred in full armour within a lead lined coffin and then, against his wishes to be buried on land, but likely with much respectful mourning and suitable gravitas, he was chucked overboard into Portobello Bay. England had always been a maritime kingdom, but the decades of seaborne conflict, most of it undeclared, and the decline of the trading status quo had forced some significant changes. Over 50 years, English mariners had vastly expanded their horizons. Regular merchant fleets made their way to Russia, to Morocco, and to the eastern Mediterranean. Privateers prowled the coast of West Africa, the Atlantic, and the Pacific, trained through experience in ship-to-ship combat and coastal raids. These two professions were often conducted by the same crews and the same ships, and backed by the same investors. By the turn of the 17th century, England had a merchant marine fleet of hundreds of ships crewed by experienced sailors who could traverse the vast Atlantic proficiently, if not entirely in safety. By creating significant profit for investors, the war had concentrated a vast amount of wealth into the pockets of London merchants, and who were on the lookout for further opportunities. The pressure placed on Spanish interests in the New World, not solely by the English but also the French and Dutch, required Spain to prioritise its defences, opening up North and South America and the Lesser Antilles to other European powers. The last half century had shown English merchants and nobles the strategic and material value to be found in the Americas. They weren't about to ignore this potential wealth. Thanks again to David for letting me on his show for a second time, and to you for listening to this guest episode. If you want to hear more like it, go search for Pax Britannica on your favourite podcast app. Pax Britannica is my attempt to make a podcast that covers the entire history of the British Empire. I begin the narrative in 1603, with the death of Elizabeth and James's Union of the Crowns of England, Scotland and Ireland. All going well, the first episode launched today, And throughout February, there will be two episodes a week to provide context for the narrative. That again is Pax Britannica, which you'll find on every good podcast app, as well as online at paxbritannica.info and on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck, and have a great week.